Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Dagena Dor, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we're talking to Dr. Rana Mitter about his new book, China's Good War, How World War II is Shaping a New Nationalism, published by the Harvard University Press in 2020. Dr. Mitter, welcome to the show. Great pleasure to be here, and I'm looking forward very much to our conversation. Thank you. Um, I wonder if you can begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in modern East Asia, particularly in the history of World War II in the region. Sure. Um, I started studying Chinese, uh, the Chinese language at university, which I should say, since we're talking about more than 30 years ago, I'm afraid, it was actually a slightly unusual thing to do here in the United Kingdom, which is where I'm speaking to you from. It's actually uh, quite a uh, a chilly evening here in Oxford when I'm speaking to you. I'm, I'm sure the weather is better in California, where I know that you're located. So in the UK, I have to say that although, of course, there are strong connections with China in particular because of Hong Kong and the wider history, it's not a country that's all, that's ever had a terribly high profile in contrast, say, with India, which, of course, does have that much longer imperial connection and a broader one as well. So I'd say that, in a sense, my interest in modern East Asia and in China and then Japan specifically, came partly through a sense of curiosity a long time ago when I was in high school about a place that was clearly very large, very prominent, but in in the context that I knew, really not very well known. So that was the thing that led me into the adventure of learning Chinese, which was my starting point. And I would say I came to the history from there in the sense that having studied how to speak modern Chinese and how to read it, Obviously, you had to read about something. And I realized more and more that, you know, certainly compared to the Western countries whose histories, I guess I had read either on a, you know, kind of scholarly, but also to some extent, just sort of for pleasure basis, that an awful lot of bases were covered really very extensively, you know, when it came to France and Britain and the United States. But it was really an era when even compared to now, I think, the history of China was something that still looked in some ways quite sort of outside the mainstream, marginalised almost, you might say. And I wanted to find out if that was, was deserved or not. And I came to the conclusion you know, that clearly it very much wasn't the, uh, the case that actually the lack of attention to China and Japan, certainly in the context of where British history, histori- in the context of where British historians tended to look at it, uh, was, was undeserved and, and needed to be, to be remedied. So having started to look further at that history, I was struck by the way over the years this is really as I you know started to explore various various um, uh, topics about one particular hole you might say a lacuna in the middle of the 20th century and that was the whole period in the 1930s and 1940s which is marked by what eventually became the second world war in Asia now I think there are probably a lot of influences uh, on making me feel that way. One I should say actually was my doctoral supervisor, as we, we called it in the UK, advisor is the term you tend to use in, in the States, I know. Um, Hans van der Ven, a Harvard-trained historian, and actually one of the world's most important historians of the Second World War and he, in China. And he's published uh, several very important books on that, on that subject. But my own first entryway into this subject was something slightly different, which was the initial invasion and occupation of Dongbei, the the northeastern area of China, region of China, uh, known then as Manchuria. And it was really driven by something that's, I think, found its way through a lot of the writing that I've done on the subject, which is trying to understand the events and perspectives from the point of view of the people being invaded. So there was a lot of discussion at that time about, uh, or not discussion, there was a lot of scholarly conversation at that time about the Manchurian crisis, as it was known, being an issue in international relations. And of course, it still remains a very important case studies for 
uh, for that subject. But I was interested in knowing what it felt like on the ground for people who had been invaded and occupied in that huge region, you know, this sort of vast territory in northeast China and were occupied by the Japanese for, for 14 years. How did that feel? You know, who collaborated with the Japanese? Who resisted them? Why did they do that? And that study became my doctoral thesis, eventually my first monograph, The Manchurian Myth. And an interest in that period, the 1930s, and 1940s has stayed with me ever since. Prior to the book we're discussing today, um, I explored the subject in terms of a, a more overarching history of China's Second World War experience in the book uh, published in 2013 called Forgotten Ally. Um, it's called China's War with Japan Outside the, the United States. But it's the same book, and the subtitle is China's World War II, 1937 to 45. And that enabled me to sort of indulge, uh, if we want to put it that way, or at least kind of get out of my system, the need to really understand in a comprehensive way the social and political history of why the Second World War had changed China and why, in some ways, it was a really transformative event in the mid-20th century. But that left behind one question, which perhaps leads us to where we are today, which is not just why what China suffered during World War II and the effect it had on the country, but why it still seems to be so important in many ways in the China of today, 75 years on from the end of World War II, um, in a very different sort of society, a very different sort of China. So you could say that my, how can you put it, uh, um, engagement with China's Sino-Japanese War experience, its World War II experience broadly defined, stretches chronologically from the beginning of that conflict in 1931 to the end and beyond, but also really across the whole thread of my uh, career in academic uh, writing from the 1990s through to the present day. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, it's really great to have you <laughs> choose East Asian cities and, and for you to choose um, these areas to study. I mean, you're really bringing a lot of really um, significant and important uh, perspectives into the conversations. Um, so before we jump into the book, can you tell us how you uh, began this book project, specifically the, the China's uh, Good War? Absolutely. So China's Good War is a title that is intended slightly to raise eyebrows, because of course, all of us know that the one thing you can't say about war is that it's good. And I wanted to explain the terms in which I meant that, which actually come from the origins of the of the project. When I was doing research on a whole variety of topics uh, in China in the 1990s, 2000s, so we're talking about, you know, more than 20 years ago now, when I was a postdoctoral fellow initially, um, I was doing sort of classic historical research, you know, archives, libraries, that sort of thing. But wherever I went in China... I found that various aspects of China's history during the years of World War II found themselves appearing in all sorts of different places that seemed much, much removed from what you might find in the library or the archive. So, you know, you would turn on the TV in some cheap hotel room and see endless numbers of uh, either documentary series or uh, kind of adventure uh, fiction series on TV, uh, you know, kind of soap operas. Uh, set during the period of the war against the, the Japanese in the 30s or 40s. I also remember, I think, for the first time in 1997, visiting the Museum of China's War of Resistance Against Japanese Aggression, which people will know, of course, is the official Chinese term for the, the China uh, theatre of World War World War II uh, in, in China, uh, often abbreviated in Chinese to, to just Kang Zhan. And the museum, which is placed at Wanping, uh, you know, a few kilometers outside the center of uh, of, of Beijing, uh, the site where the war actually broke out in, in 1937, is now a very large, comprehensive museum of that wartime period. So going to see that initially, as I say, more than 20 years ago, also put into my mind that this was something quite important in uh, the mind of, of, of modern China. And then going to bookstores, picking up books in which you know, quite relatively young people, people in their 30s, 40s, were writing about the significance of this war for them, even though they hadn't even been born uh, by the time the war was, was finished. So for them, even though they came from later generations, the experience of World War II in China seemed to have some sort of wider significance. And that was the starting point to think about this project, which was why does this war seem in some ways to have what you might call a sort of nostalgic and in some ways quite positive value in terms of nostalgia and memory for today's China. In other words, I realized that I was starting a project 
not just about the history of the war in China, which was the previous book, but about why the war matters so much to the China of today. And in one sense, I've been researching it for over 20 years, but I'd say that it's almost become more relevant in the 2020s than it was when I was beginning to look at it in the, the 1990s. So it was quite a slow but determined process of discovery that led me to this book, China's Good War. Thank you for the clarification. Yeah, speaking of relevance uh, in, you know, in 2020, in recent years, in the introduction of the book, you remind us that actually there has been a uh, a full-length study concentrating specifically on China's memory of its wartime experience. And actually, the need for such a study has become more compelling recently. Um, can you maybe elaborate on why this is the case? Yes, and I should be very clear, actually, what I say in the introduction, because there is at least one very good study of China's wartime memory in the earlier period, the years of Mao in particular. And that's by the uh, Chinese scholar Chan Yang, based at uh, uh, Shanghai Jiao Tong University, but um, trained in the United Kingdom, I'm glad to say, at Bristol University under the supervision of the historian Robert Bickers, a very transnational person. And she's published in English uh, a very good book called China Remembers the War. But basically that book, book leaves off where this one starts. So I should specify that there hasn't been, I think, a full-length study on the wide range of China's memory of its wartime experience in the reform era, because this book really um, starts its investigation in the in the 1980s. But the question of why this is um, an important, compelling study, well, I think it's for this reason. If you think about all the other major uh, belligerent powers during World War II, particularly on the Allied side, and that is, of course, the Soviet Union, the United States, the British Empire, uh, that part of France, was, which resisted because France, France had both you know, collaboration on its territory, but also de Gaulle and others who resisted. All of them, one way or another, did use that memory of the wartime experience, the fighting in World War II, the sacrifices made by people in the Allied cause, both civilians and soldiers, as a means of creating a national myth in the era that followed the war. Now, this went up and down. It didn't sort of emerge immediately forged in any of these countries. Uh, and in the Soviet Union, for instance, although there was a story of the Great Patriotic War, as it's known, really from you know the moment the war ended, it kind of went up and down and it came and went over time. But it was always there. In China, it was different. And it was different essentially because there was the need to... Um, uh, cope with the fact that the Guomindang, the nationalists, had been fighting alongside the communists, and that couldn't really be talked about in great detail in the Mao years. And that meant many very important aspects of China's war memory uh, were played down during that period uh, between the 1950s and 1980s. It wasn't absent, as um, uh, Chan Yang's book shows, but it also was not at the centre of the way in which the state thought about itself through class struggle, cultural revolution, and so forth. And so that makes it more surprising and interesting, I think, that from the 1980s onwards, which is the period that this book really concentrates on, China's memory of its wartime experience and a kind of nostalgic looking back at what that period uh, meant in a kind of wider cultural sense, sort of almost re-emerged in the 1980s, having been talked about relatively little before that, and has just tended to grow and grow in other words, that if we want to explain a phenomenon which everyone is talking about these days, certainly in the United States, and I think in Europe as well, which is the rise in Chinese nationalism, that understanding what that nationalism means has become a much more compelling and urgent task. And I would make the case in this book that there are lots of aspects of nationalism. Yes, some of it can be quite xenophobic at times. That tends to be what people concentrate on to the exclusion of everything else. And I wouldn't for a minute deny that there's some very unpleasant aspects of that, particularly the so-called wolf warrior diplomacy of, of recent uh, months as we're, we're speaking. But also there are many other aspects that have much more to do with China's sense of itself in a quite internalized way. And I think that if you don't understand the particular importance of World War II specifically, the Sino-Japanese war in a global context, and what that has meant for Chinese people in the last 30 to 40 years, that very recent period, 
you're missing a really important building block in the story of what Chinese nationalism is. So that's why I think that the need for this particular study became quite compelling. I think it's of historical interest, but I think it's also really important to inform a very present day conversation about what is Chinese nationalism and how should we in the wider world understand it. Thank you. Yeah. And I think an important um, thing that you identify as a um, significant critical building block to China's current nationalism is memory, right? How memory works. Um, and a very interesting idea that the book introduces to talk about how collective memory kind of flows um, across time and space is circuits of memory. Um, so please tell us more about this idea and, and how does it help us to understand how World War II is remembered and also used in China and Chinese uh, nationalism. One of the contributions that I hope to make with the idea of circuits of memory is something that might be significant, not just to the history of World War II in China, the memory of World War II in China, but actually to other arenas as well. What I mean by it is this. We often talk about the way in which certain things are global and transnational. And certainly, I think memory of war and collective memory of war can fit into that category. Otherwise, events such as, you know, the, the this year, the, the VE and VJ Day commemorations, which took place across Asia, across Europe, couldn't, uh, ha- couldn't have happened because people wouldn't have shared the sense that this was part of, of, of a collective set of, uh, of shared memories. But I think what is important to understand is that people in different societies don't share necessarily the same exactly the same set of memories in the same way. By that, I mean the following. If you think about the meaning of World War II, and that's a huge, great phrase, I know, but bear with me for a moment. In what you might call the liberal democrat, in what you might call the liberal democratic global north, then, uh, and by that I mean, say, the United States, Canada, uh, you know, the UK, Western Europe, uh, France, Germany, all these sorts of places. For all the countries in that category, whether they were on the Axis side or the Allies side, so I'd include Germany in, in this category, there is a story about what World War II meant that is basically about the restoration of democracy in particular, that it was a war fought for liberal reasons, that it was a war fought against forces of immense evil, fascism in, in particular, to try and restore and enhance um the idea of liberal democracy. And of course, the Atlantic Charter, which Churchill and Roosevelt were involved with, is a very important articulation of that idea. And I think that's a perfectly valid and indeed very admirable explanation for World War II, which has continued to give it the idea, to fuel the idea that it was, to use the phrase that I've I've stolen, I have to say, for the book's title, from uh, the great American oral historian, historian Studs Terkel, that it was a good war. In other words, not that the war itself was good in terms of death and fighting, but rather it was good in terms of creating a myth or a moral purpose to the war that was ultimately worthwhile. But if you zip across to Moscow, to the old Soviet Union, to what's now Russia, they're very, very keen to also have people remember their contribution to fighting fascism in World War II. But in no description could you say that the Soviet contribution was primarily to defend liberal democracy, because, of course, it was, amongst other things, to defend the regime of Joseph Stalin and the Soviet Union, which was not liberal and not democratic in in that sense at all. And, of course, was pretty murderous in its own right. And that puts us, I think, in mind the fact that when we understand you know, even the well-known cases of the West versus the Soviet Union, you have different circuits of memory. In other words, people share ideas, understandings, assumptions about what the war was about in very different sorts of ways. You know, for the Soviets, it would have been probably for the, the restoration of a particular sort of order, as well as an ideological opposition to fascism. For the liberal democracies, it was much more about an idea of bringing back that liberal norm. So that brings up the question of China. You know, what is the kind of shared collective memory that China and its World War II experience could actually be part of? And I argue quite strongly in the book that you have to understand what it was that China's fighters and China's people and China's politicians and soldiers thought that they were actually fighting for. Because clearly, although many phrases about democracy were used by top leaders, most people did not feel themselves to be part of certainly a liberal democratic enterprise in the way that perhaps you know, soldiers for GIs or um, uh, British soldiers would have, uh, would have done. And the overall purpose 
was, of course, to defeat the Japanese and to uh, create a new stable order. But it was not necessarily an order that was going to be liberal and democratic in the way that the United States expected it to be. So in that sense, I think that the idea of circuit of memory is pointing out that even though one of the things that China has been doing in the last 30 to 40 years is helping to, in a sense, blend its own contribution in the wartime years to a global story. In other words, China wants to be part of that global story of defeating fascism. But at the same time, the circuit of memory within which it operates is one in which order, rather than, say, liberal democracy, ends up being a much more important justification for why China fought the war and why it was important it was on the winning side. And that circuit is not shared, I would say, in that way with Western Europe or with North America. And memory, in a way, um, or these different circuits of memory, in a way, also creates different uh, moral meanings right, for the war. And this is sort of explained in Chapter 1. So Chapter 1, Hot War, Cold War, um, traces the trajectory of World War II in China and argues that the meaning of the war for the majority of the Chinese who were fighting was actually significantly different from its meaning for their American and British allies. Um, so what was China's narrative for um why we fight, and how is it different from the narratives constructed by the other allied forces? So I think that what I try to do in that chapter is to explain that there are quite specific narratives, moral meanings, wider messages that underpinned China's resistance to the Japanese in World War II at the time. And that it's important to understand how the Chinese saw that war at the time um, to be able to understand how it's changed in the period after the war um, itself. So different um, groups within Chinese society in the wartime years had, to be honest, very different views about what the war was for. Um, let's take just, you know, past the three major um, uh, players, you might say, uh, in that war uh, on the Chinese side and look at the different way in which they would have seen what they were fighting for. First of all, the uh, leader of China's nationalist government at the time, Chiang Kai-shek, Jiang Jishu, is the figure who at that time was, of course, recognized as the leader of China internationally and uh, the head of the recognized government. And I think Chiang Kai-shek's Guomindang, the Nationalist Party, and the regime which he was at that time in charge of, were looking for a variety of things. They saw the war, I think, first of all, as a chance once and for all to solve the problem of China's compromised sovereignty. Uh, you know, ever since really the breakup of the Qing Empire in 1911, uh, China had been scrambling and scrabbling to try and regain uh, the sovereignty that it had lost after the Opium Wars, after bits of territory had been carved off. And then finally, of course, in the ultimate insult, the invasion of China's territory by the Japanese, um, which had to be overcome. So that question of territorial sovereignty was very important. For Chiang Kai-shek. But so also, I think, was uh, for his party, the sense of trying to create a fiscally stable, um, ideologically united nation state. Um, was it going to be democratic? Well, I think not initially, but certainly if you look at Sun Yat-sen's thinking, and that was very influential on many of the Nationalist Party, I think they expected to have at least debates about what the, the shape of the politics of the post-war China, Chinese state would, would be between you know, real hardliners like uh, Chen, Chen Lifu and Chen Guofu and more liberal figures, people in uh, the government or associated with it, like Hu Shi and Jiang Tingfu and, and, and others. Um, but on the other hand, we shouldn't necessarily think of that as being uh, the pathway to a kind of pluralist democracy of the sort that we uh, would see in, in uh, many parts of the world today. But on the other hand, it was part of that kind of set of conversations about what should China be after the war is is over. Now, you then have to contrast that with, of course, the other big player on the resistance side, which is the Chinese Communist Party. Um, at that point, Mao Zedong was moving to the, the top of the uh, the power structure in the, the party, which he'd solidified during the wartime years with the so-called uh, Zhengfeng uh, rectification movements. But they wanted a very different sort of post-war um, vision. In a sense, if the Guomindang nationalist position was about evolution of where China was and throwing out imperialism... The Chinese communists wanted those things too. They wanted national sovereignty. They wanted um, imperialism to end in China, but they also wanted a much more radical sort of revolution, perhaps to be put forward in stages, but ultimately 
class struggle and the creation of an entirely new sort of society. So that's a sort of different aim, you know, the old Chinese expression of people, two people in one bed, but with different dreams. And the other element that I think that we need to put in, which we forget, is that there was a whole bunch of other Chinese who were fighting in World War II, but they were fighting on the Japanese side. And those could be exemplified by Wang Jingwei, the leader of the collaborationist government that operated in Nanjing between 1940 and 1945, they also had a vision of what they were fighting about. But from their point of view, it was better, they thought, since they were forced into it, to be part of this greater Japanese empire, try and carve out some position for China within it, and express what the historian Tim Brooke has called collaborationist nationalism, a new definition of what China was going to be by taking part in the war on the Axis side rather than the Allied side. So really, overall, it's fair to say that when we talk about what China was fighting for in World War II, we're actually talking about what different groups within China wanted. And some of them were heading in the same direction, the defeat of the Japanese, but the pathway that they wanted to take to get there could be quite different in all those uh, all those cases. And because the communists eventually, of course, won in 1949, we sometimes tend to forget that actually the pathway to that 1949 victory was not preordained or obvious or inevitable, but came through a whole variety of quite uh, complicated paths. Thank you. Yeah, it's pointing out that diversity um, in the narrative of why we fight is really important in understanding that part of history. And, and chapter two turns to the changing historiography, actually, in post-Cold War China. Um, so here we're looking at the Deng Xiaoping era um, of the 1980s. And your book points out that um, in the 1980s, uh, there was an openness and willingness in Chinese academia to encourage research on a variety of previously forbidden areas of historical study. Um, so what aspects of the wartime period became topics of interest uh, for the Chinese academics? Absolutely. And chapter two basically picks up the story at the beginning of the 1980s, as you say. And that follows that period, which I mentioned you know, earlier on in our conversation. But just a reminder that during the Mao years, World War Two, the war against the Japanese was talked about, but it was very much in quite stylized terms. It, you know, the Chinese Communist Party was in the lead and, you know, that's all there is to it. And very little, if any, mention of the Kuomintang or indeed uh, the Americans or the British or other foreign powers who had also been uh, on the Allied side in China during World War Two. So, of course, the Cultural Revolution ended. Uh, Mao, of course, died in 1976 and reform opening and the era of Deng Xiaoping began. And of course, there were a whole variety of changes that hit China during that period, you know, everything from the introduction of markets to uh, the setting up of special economic zones. But along with that, a, press, a, a pressure for more academic freedom to basically have China talk about a whole variety of subjects that it simply hadn't been addressing properly, including you know, economics, sociology, and indeed, history. And what I explore in that chapter is the way that particular historians based in particular institutions, I should say, found themselves basically looking at areas of um, interest to do with the World War II period that hadn't been previously looked at. So let me just say who they, you know, who these people were and then why it was permitted for them to, to do so, what, what the agenda was for the state. So you'll see if you look at the writing that basically emerges in Chinese historical journals in the early 1980s through to the, the middle of that decade, much more exploration of uh, much more exploration of subjects that had previously been essentially uh, taboo, uh, and these might include, you know, a kind of frank and open discussion of the actually very considerable role of the nationalists, the Kuomintang, and of Chiang Kai-shek uh, beyond that, uh, uh, in terms of the ultimate defeat of the Japanese. So big battles and uh, uh, and, and conflicts such as uh, battles in Shanghai. Uh, Taizhuang, Changsha, these sorts of places, which were very important in terms of the progress of the war, but had not been much talked about in the mainland because the Communist Party, the Chinese Communist Party, wasn't really involved with them at all. And a variety of historians who I discuss, uh, uh, pioneers, uh, Professor Zhang Xianwen of the uh, Nanjing University, figures also Nanjing, Fudan in Shanghai, uh, the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Again, many, many distinguished scholars, uh, you know, more of them are, are named in the, uh, in the book, wrote some pretty groundbreaking stuff based on archival materials from Nanjing and elsewhere that really argued that, look, we have to look again 
at this particular period and acknowledged that actually it wasn't just about the Communist Party. They were important. They said, of course, they were important. But at the same time, we have to understand that the Guomindang, the nationalists, also fought a very considerable number of wars during this period. Now, you have to remember that this was a very daring thing to do at the time because mentioning the Guomindang in a positive way was not a simple thing to do. There were some motivations on the state's side, uh, as in the, the, the party state, uh, the, the CCP, to do this. One was trying to get a bit closer to Taiwan, where, of course, many of the Guomindang had fled in 1949 after the Civil War. And this was felt to perhaps to be one way to try and get a bit closer to them and say, you know, we understand historically where you're where you're coming from and we want to say something nice about your contribution to recent history but there's also a wider sense in which it became part of the project in particular as i go through in the chapter of of one rather surprising character and that's the communist ideologue and historian and top level party operative uh hu chiaomu uh formerly chairman mao's um private secretary, uh, you know, he was in Yan'an during the war, fiercely anti-Guomindang. He was not fond of them at all. So it's a really top level communist character. But he did believe it was important for the uh, People's Republic to spend more time thinking about the wider history of World War II, because he felt that it was really important in terms of understanding the place of the Second World War in the overall formation of China's role in international society. In other words, he was one of the first people, not the last by any means, but one of the first people to suggest that maybe China's modern, you know, most recent phase of modern history did not just begin in 1949, in other words, the communist victory on the mainland, but to some extent in 1945, when the Guomindang was still in power in terms of China entering international society, the United Nations, and so forth. It was said in a very preliminary way. And as I say, that idea has, has developed much more over time. And I think we'll probably come back to that later in the, in the conversation. But it's worth noting that that endorsement from people, you know, hardline communists like Hu Chiamu, was an important reason that these very innovative historians at the university level felt encouraged to make these cases, make these claims that um, previously, you know, three, four, five years before might have been essentially forbidden and censored out of, uh, out of existence. Thank you. That's really interesting. And then uh, to talk about academics, um, it's also important to kind of uh, look at how these previously forbidden areas of historical study are also discussed in the public sphere, right, which is what is discussed in chapter three and four. Um, so chapter three and four both kind of look to public sites and spaces of war memory in China since the 1990s and how they kind of helped to shape World War II into China's uh, quote unquote good war. Um, so these public spaces um, include museums, as discussed in Chapter 3, and also TV, film, and the online space um, discussed in Chapter 4. So how was the war um, been narrated in these different arenas as the good war, and also why? I think that it's really important to understand that over the last 30 or 40 years, China's own collective memory of World War II has made itself very much a presence in the public sphere in various ways. And you've already mentioned, uh, we're talking about museums, we're talking about movies, films, online, you know, all these areas, China's World War II experience is very, very much present. And there's a direct link between what we were just talking about, which is the way in which, you know, the quite specific and scholarly academic rediscovery of the broader history of World War II, including the role of the Guomindang in particular, um, you know, obviously put forward in scholarly journals and the kind of things that don't have much general um, exposure, made a kind of inexorable move into the public sphere as, you know, filmmakers, popular historians and others started to read the stuff, started to talk about the new history that was being published in this quite daring way and brought it into the public sphere. So I would say that, you know, one of the very important areas that helped to publicize this is museums. And I mentioned the uh, Museum of the War of Resistance uh, in Beijing at Wanping, just outside uh, the, the city. But also there were other ones that emerged in the 1980s, the, the famous Nanjing Massacre Museum, which you know anyone who's been to the city of Nanjing will probably have visited, still you know, very much there today. And also actually the Museum of the Jiuyiba, the 18th September Museum in Shenyang in northeast China, commemorating the uh, Japanese invasion of Manchuria in, in 19. So in terms of big institutions that were then used for public education, you know, school children, visitors, tourists, all these sorts of people, the history that, first of all, the academic historians have been talking about made its way much more into the public sphere. 
But there was also official position, uh, sorry, official permission given through uh, the censorship authorities to allow a more broad and in some ways authentic and realistic portrayal of the wartime years in popular culture as well. So, you know, as early as the mid-1980s, the first film uh, was made of the Battle of Taiyuan. Uh, you know, this big battle in April 1938, which the Chinese won against the Japanese, but was actually won by the Kuomintang or people associated with them, like Li Zongren, uh, not by the Chinese Communist Party. And in that sense, you see the beginning of a phenomenon, which in the two chapters that you mentioned, um, I then show emerging into a whole variety of different aspects of the public sphere. So just to give couple of quick uh, examples of, of that to show the kind of broad range in terms of what we're talking about. One that I found particularly interesting was uh, related to a person who over the years has become, I think, I think I know, one of China's best known uh, television personalities for a while, and that's uh, Tui Yongyuan. Uh, he's no longer appearing so much on, t- on TV, but he was a big fixture on Chinese television in the late 1990s through to the, the early 2010s, really. And, you know, he had a big chat show in China, talk show, discussed a lot of taboo issues uh, such as you know, mental health uh, in, uh, in China during that time. But one issue he really took up uh, almost as a reporter was trying to find out about the history, not of the communists, but of the Kuomintang soldiers who had basically um, been uh, fighting on the, the front line in places like the Burma border uh, in 1943, 44, that sort of period, but whose stories had essentially been kind of cut out of the of the narrative. And going down to actually you know, make a documentary originally about communist soldiers, he found lots of these former nationalist soldiers and started filming them and talking to them. And he tried to, and they, they were really pleased to see him, but, you know, some of the interviews with him that I've, I've got uh, excerpted in, in the book, uh, these, you know, presumably 80, 90-year-old veterans were saying things like, uh, nobody's ever paid any attention to me. You know, please don't, almost almost ironically, please don't interview me because I think my head can't take it if you do. But, of course, they did get interviewed and they did want to be interviewed. And so you again made this you know, kind of a scandal. He said, why on earth are we not celebrating these soldiers who fought against the Japanese? Well, initially, he indicated, the, the state authorities were not very keen to have these interviews with Kuomintang soldiers put on television. But in the age of social media, what he was able to do was to upload them uh, to various portals where they got you know tremendous numbers of hits from all accounts. Eventually, they were actually shown on, on TV in part as well. But that series, Wada uh, Kangran, My War of Resistance, with lots of oral histories, still very much available online today. You can you know go online and, and, and look at episodes of it if you, if you speak Chinese. Um, an example of basically how the combination of very modern cultural phenomena, not just television, but social media, celebrity culture. I think it wouldn't have happened had it not been Tsui Yongyuan, you know, one of the best known faces in China, combined with this new significance of the good war, the idea of a war where nationalists, communists, doesn't matter, Chinese fought back against the Japanese. That narrative, that ethically constituted narrative in the, the words of the political scientist uh, Roger Smith, um, came together in this very, very powerful way. One other example, you know, that again, I think uses that very modern sort of phenomenon to explain what's going on. People who follow some aspects of Chinese social media will know that one of the things that there's a big, or that over recent years, there's been a bit of a, a kind of online conflict about is the battle between the so-called guofen and the maofen. In other words, fans of Mao, Maofen, and fans of the Kuomintang, Guofen. And one of the ways in which these online groups, you know, the Guofen are basically having this rather nostalgic take that, oh, things used to be better when the Guomindang were in power and Chiang Kai-shek was in power back in the 1930s and 40s. And the Maofen are saying, you know, you're out of your minds. This is crazy. You know, Mao was a much better ruler than Chiang Kai-shek. And how dare you say this? And they write all sorts of rude things about each other uh, online, which leave uh, observers slightly, slightly dumbfounded. But this matters a lot in terms of this World War II narrative, because actually one of the really primary areas in which the Guofen in particular are keen to press their case is the, the idea that really it was the Guomindang who did most of the really hardcore battle fighting, uh, which leads me to, you know, when you read these sort of uh, posts, to see this sort of account that basically some particular battle or some particular um, uh, event in World War Two, you know, the Shanghai Warehouse um, uh, uh, battle, which has recently been in the, in the movie Ba Bai, the, the 800, that sort of thing. Now, 
why is this significant? Well, I argue it's in the, it's significant in the same way that when, let's say, people in, I don't know, the US Deep South are talking about Confederate statues and whether, you know, that heritage should be kept there or not, they're not, in the most part, really talking about history. I mean, some of them are history buffs and they really care about what happened at uh, Vicksburg or at um, Antietam or whatever. But actually, a lot of what they're saying is about what the United States is now. And we all know that the US Civil War is not past history in America today. It's very much current affairs. Well, that's true in many aspects of the Second World War as well, in terms of making a case that these online warriors want to make about whether today's CCP China is better or worse than some imagined version of the past. And the wartime contribution becomes part of that. Final note on this, in this section, to pick up that point I just made about World War II in China being current affairs and not just history. Well, the movie I just mentioned, Babai, the 800, is a really good example of that. This year, as you probably know, 2020, it's been the biggest box office movie, I think, in the world, with over $300 million worth of box office tickets sold for it. It's sort of big, gory epic about this last stand battle in 1937 in Shanghai. But you have to remember that just over a year ago, in July 2019, the film was about to open the Shanghai Film Festival, and it was banned outright and banned for basically an entire year because it was felt that because it covered the nationalists and not the communists, some communist cultural authorities felt that it wasn't appropriate and it took a year for it to be released. In other words, the politics of the Communist Party and the Nationalist Party today in the 2019-2020 became relevant to this film that's entirely historical and doesn't mention the present day almost at all until the very last frames of the uh, uh, of the film. So in that sense, this is about history, but it's very much also about how history shapes ideas and attitudes in the present day, and indeed going into the future. And this battle between the nationalists and, and the uh, communists in the Chinese memory is also, or can be, present in local forms, right? So in Chapter 5, um, from Chongqing to Yan'an, the discussion on war memory in China um, turns to these local forms, specifically focusing on how the center of gravity of historiography has been shifted from Chongqing, or the uh, wartime kind of headquarter for the Kuomintang, um, to Yan'an, headquarter for the communists, but also how these local regions have attempted to revive and celebrate their own war memories um, in revisionist accounts. So my question is, so how compatible are these local narratives of the war with more centralized top-down narratives promoted by the party state today? Local narratives are, I think, one of the single most interesting things about the way in which memory of World War II is shaping identity in China today. Because it's not, I think, about local identity versus national identity, but rather the way at which the two sides operate almost at not at 180 degrees from each other, but 90 degrees from each other. I'll explain what I mean. One of the places that I've always found fascinating in China because of my interest in World War II is Chongqing, which, as you said, was the temporary wartime capital of China between 1937 and 46. Uh, uh, the Kuomintang finally went back to Nanjing uh, in, in 1946. And for a very long time, Chongqing's history as the temporary wartime capital, certainly under Mao, was not very much mentioned. Uh, the city did preserve a few of the historical sites, you know, Hong Yanchun, where Zhou Enlai and others basically were the communist delegates to Chongqing during the war. But, you know, the vast majority of what happened in Chongqing happened under the Kuomintang and therefore couldn't be commemorated under Mao. Things, ever since the opening up, though, of this space for more wide-ranging discussion of the war, since the 1980s and 90s onwards, Chongqing has taken up this nostalgia and taken up this heritage and made really big business of it. So these days, you can go out to Huangshan, the um, little kind of um, estate uh, on the outskirts of Chongqing, where Chiang Kai-shek had his kind of wartime headquarters when he wasn't in the main city. And it's all preserved in a very respectful way, I have to say, as being the wartime headquarters of the Generalissimo. Sometimes there's even an actor, kind of cosplay guy, dressed up as Chiang Kai-shek to, to show you around, which adds a certain level of uh, uh, of kind of uh, three-dimensionality to, to what's going on. Elsewhere in the city, you'll find areas like, you know, the um, old air raid tunnels um, being uh, uh, revived either as restaurants in some cases or as, as, as museums. In other words, a whole variety of history that wasn't being told has been revived. And one of the interviews I did particularly actually also heard from the, the great historian Su Zhuliang, 
is the way in which oral histories were also collected by some really fine historians uh, to try and collect memories of people who had been evacuated out to Chongqing in the wartime years, you know, before they died off. And some of those older people said they were never able to tell their stories under Mao. Now they could. And their great fear was not dying because, you know, everyone dies. Their great fear was that their memories would not be recorded for later generations because, of course, they had gone off not to the communist areas in Yan'an, but rather to the uh, nationalist areas and the capital at uh, at Chongqing. So all sorts of things, including, of course, the, terif- the, hor- the horrific air raids, the Da Hongzha, the great bombing of Chongqing, which took place, you know, month by month for, for years uh, in the late 30s, early 40s. All of these are now central to the way that Chongqing talks about itself to the wider world, but they're also, in a sense, something of an opposition to the way in which Beijing talks about the war, which is very much top-down, leading role of the Communist Party. You know, the Chongqing narrative never says explicitly, well, actually, you know, the Guomindang did more and our own people suffered more than anyone else, but the implication is really, really strong. And those sorts of narratives, I think, do a lot to try and create a local sense of identity that in some ways pushes back against just a sort of top-down kind of uh, version that we uh, we sometimes see. Just a brief thought also about Yan'an, the communist wartime capital, which is also discussed there. And the way that I talk about this is through a book by a historian called Hu, Hu, sorry, Zhu Hongzhao, um, which is about everyday life in Yan'an. And it's a book I found fascinating because it provides a kind of mixture of something you don't see very often, certainly these days in Western writing about uh, China during this period. Because on the one hand, Zhu Zhao's book is very frank about the many, you know, sort of negative sides and often very brutal sides of communist rule in Yan'an during those years. It's not a sort of red nostalgia book that argues that basically everything was wonderful. It says that it was dirty, says that people fought with each other, says that, you know, some people were, were you know, subjected to psychological and even physical torture. So there's no stepping away from that. But the book also says that nonetheless, the Yan'an experience is something that actually people elsewhere in China should understand because it was about a kind of collective identity that was something that was bigger than just um, individual interests. And the author slightly mourns at the end of the book that, you know, today's China, maybe where the kids are all have, you know, kind of cars and uh, video games and, you know, anything their consumerist hearts might desire, that they need to look at Yan'an as perhaps a period when even despite the hardships and the horrors, sacrifice was something that was meaningful. And I think it's really interesting that in recent weeks, as we're recording this, in a slightly different context, the Korean War rather than Yan'an, but Xi Jinping, no less, has been using that term, Xi uh, sacrifice, as a means of explaining why wartime can sometimes shape societies in directions that are more collective rather than more individual. And we see a lot of that, I think, in that kind of localized uh, memory that you uh, you find in different parts of China, from Chongqing to Yan'an to Nanjing to the northeast, all over the place. Yeah, it's very fascinating. And and beyond the local forms or within China, um, the the memory, the wartime memory amongst the Chinese also extends to international events, right? So in the sixth chapter of the book, the Cairo Syndrome discusses this kind of revival of interest in topics such as the Cairo Conference in 1943 and how it fueled um, China's attempts to reassess the processes that led to the post-World War II global order. So what are the drives behind this kind of reassessment of the post-war order uh, based on international events and and how have these attempts shaped China's standing on the international stage today? Absolutely. So having in the previous chapter really looked, you know, very kind of granular on the ground sort of studies, you know, talking to people about their grandmother's memories or that sort of thing. For the final sort of large chapter, I wanted to look at almost the other end of the telescope, which was in the big wide world where we know that China is now becoming, you know, the most important actor perhaps after the United States in the world. Does this World War II story, does the memory of World War II have anything useful to tell us about the rise of China, a phrase you keep hearing everywhere, but is often not analysed nearly as much as it should be? And the answer is, yes, it absolutely does. Um, understanding China's attitude towards World War II is, I think, central to understanding its international position today. And to give in one sentence the reason that I think that that's the case, and then to just give you a quick example of, of, of why that is the case, I would say that up to perhaps even the 1970s, 1980s, 
China made a great play of being excluded from the global order and being a kind of almost a disruptive actor that didn't want to fit in with the world that the United States and even the Soviet Union had created, that it was going to be something different. These days, the message is very different. If you hear people like Xi Jinping or Wang Yi, the foreign minister, who was you know, speaking at the Munich Security Conference earlier this year, for instance, they point out, they argue very strongly that actually China was a founder nation of the United Nations, the first signatory of the UN Charter, and that broadly speaking, China is also an owner of the post-1945 international order, the one that seems to be under some uh, stress at the moment. But their argument is that, you know, just if, if America gets to define large parts of that order because America uh, lost so many lives and spent so much money in the Pacific War, well, then China also fought, you know, four and a half years longer than the Americans did in, in Asia and also lost millions of lives during World War II and therefore ought to also have a right to be able to shape that international order. So the argument is really about World War II as a sort of price paid for joint ownership of the post-1945 global order. So let me give you a specific example that shows why that's important uh, uh, in in detail for uh, the, the Chinese. Seven years ago, in 2013, the 70th anniversary was being marked of the Cairo conference that was held in November of 1943. And it was the only allied wartime conference in which the Chinese leader, Chiang Kai-shek, took part. He sort of sat in Cairo alongside Winston Churchill and President uh, Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, also, of course, alongside Song Mei Ling, Madame Chiang Kai-shek, uh, China's uh, voice to the international world at that, uh, that time. The conference was not f- massively significant in terms of strategy, but it did lead to one important endpoint, which was the signing of a declaration, a communique at the end, called the Cairo communique, which said, amongst other things, that territories outside Japan's home islands, including islands, uh, outlying islands, could be redistributed as the Allies saw fit when Japan had been defeated. And 70 years later, China's state authorities, media and so forth, put forward very strong arguments, which they still use today, that the Cairo communique and the Cairo conference should be justification for China's claims to the Diaoyu Islands, as the Chinese call them, the Senkaku Islands, as the Japanese call them. There's islands uninhabited halfway in the East China Sea, halfway between China and Japan. And while there's been international disputes raging around that for, for years and years, the use of this wartime example, this documentation, and the extrapolation of a decision made by the Guomindang nationalist Chinese government back in the late 1940s or mid-1940s to a decision that is now being pushed by the Communist Party of today is both a kind of interesting intellectual sleight of hands. It's essentially arguing that a government that they for a long time argued was completely illegitimate, the uh, illegitimate, the the Chiang Kai-shek government, actually should have its various claims recognised in a certain way, to also making it clear that the days in which China basically regarded itself as an outsider in the global order, are long since over. And not only does it want to have a very powerful role in international society, the UN, WTO, and so forth today, but it is using wartime history and the moment of creation of the international order in 1945, at the end of World War II, as its starting point. So that goes back to what I was saying earlier about Hu Jiamo, that communist um, theorists back in the 80s, being one of the first people to argue that Chinese history should effectively start not in 1949, but 1945, what I've called the Cairo syndrome, in other words, the argument that actually these wartime precedents really matter for China today, is yet another sign that actually 1945, and not just 1949, should be regarded as a date of origin for China's claim on the international system. Yeah, that new dating is really fascinating. It's definitely an uh, argument to think about for a lot of historians of modern China. And and lastly, how has China's World War II narrative been used recently in the Trump era and also in the age of COVID-19? Well, China's World War II narrative is a gift that keeps on giving from the point of view of uh, China's government and its ruling uh, party. I mean, some of the examples I've uh, I've given, including the ones about China basically arguing that, you know, its formative role in the United Nations, it means that it has a continuity from then till now. And that's been happening actually in a direct response to what is certainly perceived internationally as the Trump administration's very active rejection of that order. You know, President Trump has been the first US president really since 1945 
actively, it seems to reject that post-1945 world order. And that has given China the chance to say, not only were we present at the creation, to use Dean Acheson's uh, term, in 1945, it wasn't just the Americans, but also we are now the more worthy holders of that order in terms and maintainers of that order in terms of what we're, we're doing. So that is one element that clearly is, is very much there. But in terms of um, COVID-19, I thought it was fascinating. Well, I found it fascinating that when the pandemic broke out in China and was really running riot in, in the country in February, March, and it looked like it was a very, very bad time for the Chinese government, immediately Xi Jinping's government reached for the metaphor of choice, which was um, the Second World War. In other words, they talked about the People's War, the Renmin Zhanzheng, um, against the virus. Now, this is exactly the same phrase that was, of course, being used by Mao and others for their guerrilla warfare against the Japanese back in the 30s and 40s. This time it wasn't the Japanese. It was a virus that was being opposed, but very, very similar language that was being uh, being used there. So it was a metaphor that had lots of uh, potentiality to it. But I think even within the last few days and weeks as we're speaking, there's been yet another way in which this wartime metaphor issue has been twisted. And that might be a good way to bring us up, as it were, to the, the present moment. So earlier this year, in August of 19, uh, sorry, in August of 2020 and September of 2020, there was plenty of online commemoration in China of the 75th anniversary of the ending of World War II. And this was being used to tell a story about China as an international actor, very much the story I've just been talk talking about, which was... Um, the idea of China as a founder of the UN, a good internationalist power, a power with moral ballast, moral weight behind its wartime contribution, which should be used to give credit to China now for what it wants to do in the region. So all of that was happening in the course of, of just three or four months ago. But then the war metaphors changed in October, September, October, in other words, the period that I'm talking to you now. And it was clear that a rather different war was now being brought out for its anniversary dusting off. And that was not the end of World War II, but the beginning of the Korean War, which broke out, of course, in 1950, actually in June, but the commemorations have been much more tied to this autumn. Why should the Chinese be bringing this war out in the later part of the year and making documentaries about it, putting it into the kind of wider media and so forth? Well, if you think about the Chinese name for the war, it's not known as the Korean War in Chinese, it's called Kangmei, the Resistance to America War. And of course, in an era when there are trade disputes, in an era when the United States and China are talking about decoupling, in an era where many people do talk about a new Cold War, and I hope that that's a misleading impression, but certainly that's the impression that's given sometimes on, on both sides at the moment, using a Cold War metaphor, and particularly one that's specifically about pushing back against the Americans, is an obvious source of nationalist um, uh, uh, fuel, you might say. So I would say that for me, the year 2020, the year that we've been living through with the pandemic, has been a year of wartime metaphors, and that World War II has been tremendously useful for China when it comes to pushing back against COVID, people's war, when it comes to staking China's place in the international community. So that's VJ Day and uh, the end of uh, World War II in, in September. But also, in pushing back against the Americans. And in that one, of course, it is the Korean War that plays a much more powerful role, which shows that historical analogy continues to be immensely powerful in the way that the Chinese state thinks about it itself. Just because a war was over you know, more than seven decades ago does not mean that its overall power has been lost. In other words, as I kept saying, and I'll say once more, I think, in this conversation, uh, these wars are not just history. They are very much current affairs. Thank you. I think that's really the central argument of your book. Um, it's it's a very fascinating and powerful argument. Well, Dr. Mader, I think we've taken up a lot of your time. And before I let you go, we have one final question for you. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about um, your current projects that you're working on? Absolutely. Well, don't uh, I have a sort of slight feeling that I kind of get sorry, of course. Well, I sometimes have a slight feeling that I've become slightly kind of fixated by this period of the 1930s to the 1950s in, in China. But I have to say that the post-war period is one that really, I think, deserves even more explanation than it's had. And so I'm looking at the moment at that post-war decade, 1945 to 55, and looking at it in ways that, of course, take in aspects such as the Civil War, which, of course, 
uh, burned in China during that period, but also trying to use it to understand more about that period when China began to emerge as a, a sovereign actor again in international society, what that meant for the wider world, what it meant for China's own culture, what it meant for the political culture and all sorts of areas that we're still talking about, like the legitimacy of particular types of governmental systems and what China was experimenting with at that time. So it's still a project that I'm in the early stages of researching and, and putting together, but uh, I'm enjoying it very much and hope that it might enable me to think in a different way about that period after the war in the way that I've had the great enjoyment and indeed privilege of being able to do about the 1930s and 40s for perhaps too many decades of my life, but they have been very uh, enjoyable decades from my point of view as a historian. Thank you. I'm definitely looking forward to that. I'm sure uh, many of our listeners will too. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Mitter. I think your book um, really gave us a lot of things to think about, and I really enjoyed reading it. Um, so thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show with us today. Thank you very much for having me today. It's been a huge pleasure to be here on your broadcast.